now tuned in to the Dervish Commercial Real Estate Podcast. This is an opportunity you have at one of your centers. Right. It's excess land right. that's being underutilized, and you're looking to add yeah, value. In your opinion, right? Yeah, well, it's, it's, it's kind of like when you look at it, you know, people are like, Hi, welcome to our commercial real estate podcast. This is Jeff Dervich with Dervich Real Estate here. I appreciate you listening in with us. Today we have a great show. We will be discussing the world of retail investment sales, including outlook for interest rates, transaction timeframes, credit analysis, and the current investment landscape. We're going to discuss the objectives of today's buyers and sellers, as well as the pulse on foreign investment in the U.S., our guest today is Barry Wolf, Vice President of Investment Sales for Marcus and Millichap's Fort Lauderdale office. Barry comes with over 25 years of commercial real estate experience, graduating from the University of Georgia School of Law. He worked in private practice as a real estate attorney, assisting developers of grocery anchored shopping centers. Later to join Aaron's Furniture as in-house counsel overseeing the legal department for real estate then to join Marcus Similichap in 2001 as Senior Managing Director of Investments. Barry is an active member of ICSE, very involved in the real estate community, and currently resides in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Barry, thanks for being with us today. No, my pleasure. Thanks, Jeff. Appreciate the opportunity. Absolutely. It's our pleasure. Barry, if you would, as the Federal Reserve continues to increase interest rates going into the future, what do you see for cap rates for the rest of 2018 and into 2019? What impacts does the rise of cap rates have on commercial real estate? I, I think we're going to see, I mean, we're, we're, we're certainly in an increasing interest rate environment. Uh, we've seen interest rates come up over the last 6 to 12 months. So I think that's clearly the direction they're headed, I think, slowly. I mean, the Fed has basically told us there's going to be at least one, maybe a couple more increases in the Fed funds rate over the course of 2018, um, potentially some increases in the 19. I, I think any increases for this year, frankly, I feel have been already baked into the market. Uh, so I really don't see any significant, certainly, and I'm not sure really any increase to speak of or any impact to speak of on cap rates. Uh, we don't tend to see cap rates and interest rates move in lockstep anyway. So as we right. see, so it's not as if every 25 or 50 basis point increase in interest rates, that means cap rates are going to go up by that. First, we get a lot of, there's a lot of cash buyer investing, the leverage, you know, different people get different terms. So it's really, it does, certainly doesn't correlate directly. Well, you know, there is certainly some correlation. So as we sure. see interest rates, if interest rates do further increase over the next couple of years, I think we will certainly see some impact in cap rates increasing, but I, I don't think it's going to be a mat immediate, and I don't think it's going to be all that significant. I'm very bullish on the, the the cap rate environment and cap rate market looking out certainly through the end of this year, and I feel like through the next 12 months, uh, I don't see anything out there in the horizon that makes me feel like we're going to see a big increase in cap rates. You know, beyond 12 to 18 months, it just it's always very difficult to gauge and see what's out there. But for the foreseeable future, I'm, I'm really very bullish on cap rates and the investment market and the interest in investment real estate altogether all overall. 
Sure, sure. And that, you know, you make some great points there. Um, you know, I've heard that a lot with as it relates to interest rates and cap rates. And, you know, they, they have a perception that they do move in, you know, in lockstep with each other. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, while while they are correlated, I, you know, I do agree with you on them not moving right. so, cl- so closely together. Um, you work on a lot of single tenant uh, net lease product, a lot of shopping mm-hmm. center product. Uh, just discuss for a second, you know, what is the average timeline for a real estate transaction um, for a single tenant, you know, versus a shopping center? You know, single tenants, one lease, um, one tenant, shopping center, multiple leases, multiple tenants. You know, what's the average timeline for those transactions? Single tenant tends to be a shorter timeline. Um, the two aspects of the deal, you've got the due diligence or inspection period and then kind of the run up to a closing date. Uh, for any either, I mean, if it's a cash transaction, that always tends to go a quicker timeline, whether that's potential due diligence and certainly towards closing. Sure. Uh, so if there's financing involved, you're you're automatically a longer time frame. You're typically looking at probably 30 days, give or take, for due diligence, and then another minimum of probably 30 days, maybe even 45 more to get to a closing if there's financing involved. Um, if it's all cash. You're probably looking at a 20 to 30 day due diligence period and then could theoretically close as quick as all the parties are ready. Mm -hmm. Uh, It depends if it's new construction or getting a stop tenant estoppels can take some time. But generally speaking, the timeline for single tenant is certainly quicker typically than multi-tenant. There's just one one tenant, obviously. There's one lease to review. There's one building to inspect. It's usually... Unless you're talking maybe a distribution center or a large industrial facility, you know, it tends to be a smaller property if it's a QSR or a drugstore. So you're talking a you know, five to 15,000 foot building, so inspections are much quicker. If they're triple net, the property or the buyer may not even do a building inspection. Um, so I'd say in reality, a single tenant timeline for inspections to me is probably 10 to 20 days. There are times they're a little bit longer than that, particularly if we need environmental reports. Also depends what studies has the seller done recently. What do they have in their files? If they've got a, a recent survey, a recent environmental report, they can just be updated. That certainly expedites the process and the timing. Uh, so you're probably anywhere from 10 to 30 days for a single tenant. And I'd say shopping centers you're probably typically 20 to 30 days for due diligence. And again, the closing time frame at that point depends more on is there financing or not, a multi-tenant center. You, you probably have more in the way, more estoppels to obtain. A lot of estoppels, yeah, right? Yeah, so that can take some time. So you're probably looking at 15 to 30 days to close on a multi-tenant deal if it's all cash. Sure. I'd say on a gen- you know, in general. What, what is the average timeline of getting the estoppel back once it's submitted to the tenants? It, it really depends. I mean, the, the leases at times state a time period by which the, the tenant has to provide the estoppel. That's usually anywhere from 10 days on the short end to 30 days on the longer range. Wow. Um, if the lease doesn't state, it just depends. I mean, a, a, a mom-and-pop tenant, they might turn them around in a, you know, literally on the spot. I mean, we've, I've done it plenty of instances where a multi-tenant center, I'm walking the property, getting estoppels, and I get them while I'm walking through the property. Um, yeah, generally, multi-tenant, for mom-and-pops, you're probably five to ten days. Uh, you know, again, the national tenants, the lease is probably going to state how quickly they can turn it around. So, Ideally, ten to fifteen days, but there's you know there's plenty of times with nationals right. it takes closer to thirty days. And you know, in a lot of their leases, they have if they don't sign the the estoppel mm-hmm. within X number of days, they're actually in a in a in a in a default as a tenant right. in those lease agreements. So 
Uh, how, how often or not when you do need to sign, have the estoppel signed and the landlord views the lease to be one way, how many times is there a discrepancy and the tenant doesn't agree with what the estoppel is and then that prolongs the, the transaction? It can come up. I'd say it's more often on a multi-tenant deal where the tenant may have an opportunity to raise, you know, we've got roof leaks or there's, you know, the air conditioning's not working. Right. Particularly with mom and pop tenants, it's an opportunity for them to kind of raise their their problems they've yeah they may have raised to the landlord before and have kind of gone ignored um so that you know it can raise issues you've got to resolve but i mean it's it, it does happen on occasion where we see issues that we've got to take care of but what's your recommendation to the sellers that do have kind of mom and pop tenants i I'd probably get ahead of it i mean i think you you'd want to know you should typically you've got an idea if you've got you know issues the tenants are having problems with where it's roof leaks that you've been put on notice of or things along those lines so i think just realizing what issues you might have and take care of those prior to going to market ideally and you know make it where you're going to hopefully get clean estoppels in reality 100 yeah. percent, i agree you know retail investments are purchased based upon a stream of cash flow from from tenants from credit tenants and, and the value of which is in the tenants leases you know the stream of cash flow you what methods or tools do you use to measure credit of tenant and how does that affect the cap rate? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of different ways. I mean, you can look at, you know, there's, if they're, a, pub, you know, if they're a, a large company, they might have a Moody's rating or Standard & Poor's rating. Um, if they're a public company, it's looking at their financials and, you know, whether they're rated or not, just trying to get a, a gauge as their financial strength. I, I'm not hugely, I, I, I look at the tenant credit, but personally, I focus more on the quality of the real estate personally than the tenant credit. I think at times I feel like some investors put too much focus on the credit of the tenant. Yeah. Unless you're in a situation where you, you maybe you're a an older investor and you're looking to to get cash flow or tie up cash flow for the next 10, 15, 20 years that in reality might be towards the balance, you know, kind of what you have left on your life cycle or you're sure. speculating that. Uh, so at that point, I think credit is hugely important if you're, you know, if you're in your 70s and you're just trying to have as much guaranteed cash flow for the next 15 to 20 years, then credit does become very important. And I think it's looking at, uh, you know, you're looking at stock price. How has the stock performed over the last five or 10 years? Um, is the company, are they growing? Are they adding new locations? Are they, how have their earnings been, you know, coming over the last couple of years? I not say from a credit rating standpoint, I, I do feel like that's overrated. You know, the, there's the investment grade and non-investment grade or sub-investment grade or junk uh, as it relates to standard <laughs> and pours. And I, right. I really feel like that's very overrated personally. I'd look at and focus on more the, the tenant performance and how are they trending? How are they doing? How are they competing with Amazon if it's a, you know, just a, a you know, soft good retailer, if they're not a, you know, a restaurant sector? So if you're in a sector that's competing with Amazon, how are they doing there? How are they positioning themselves to compete over the next 5, 10, 15 years sure. with online retail? So, I, so again, I, I look at a lot of different ways as it relates to the tenant credit, but I think as far as just snapshot, what's their S&P rating? Well, if it's triple B plus or better, that's that's good, and that's an okay investment. If it's lower than triple B minus is actually the threshold for investment grade. If they're sub-investment grade, then they're a bad tenant and you don't want to buy them. I, I don't think that's... I really don't believe that at all, and I think some investors again overstate that. And again, you know, franchise operators are typically not going to have any sort of a you know Standard and Poor's rating or Moody's rating. 
Uh, so you're trying to gauge based on their store performance or overall performance, how are they doing? So again, there's no good or bad or right or wrong. Uh, but I think you want to be careful not to overstate the credit or certainly just looking at what's their S&P rating, and that alone gives a snapshot, tells you if they're good or bad. In a, in a mom-and-pop situation, you look at a financial statement, like what type of items do you specifically look to to determine you know, credit or if you – know, what 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 components in their in their financial yeah. statement do you look to? Well, I think you want to look at you know are they reporting store sales first of all um, at the unit level, and then so how is that store performing? What's their rent to sales ratio? Is it a healthy ratio? Um, typically, I'd say you know, under eight to ten percent, or is it uh, somewhere in the eighteen, nineteen, twenty plus percent ratio, which might be higher than you know they can be successful at. So I think that's something I would certainly look at. Uh, trying to look at their their P&L, their balance sheet, trying to gauge how much debt do they have, how much liquidity do they have. Uh, I think just trying to gauge the overall health of the of the enterprise and you know, looking at even credit card debt if it's a mom-and-pop operator. And again, just trying to get you know, kind of stress factors just to see can they sustain any downturns? Are they, you know, are they just hanging on by a bootstrap? Or are they, you know, they look like they're strong operators and they've got strong liquidity and can make it and be successful for the next number of years. Yeah, absolutely. I know in the in the restaurant business, you want to see um, operational costs, you know, in the eight to ten percent right. range, and that kind of being a ceiling, more or yeah. less. You, you know, the lower the better. Yeah, typically um, agreed. So, when, when selling retail investment properties, how important is the uh, the real estate tax component to the sale? You know, once the property transacts, the taxes change due to the new sales price. You know, how do you account for future property taxes in your underwriting? Um. In single tenant sector, we really don't um, much to speak of. I mean, any increase is passed on to the tenant. Uh, admittedly, that may make their operating costs higher. So it could make it where come you know lease renewal or if they ever vacate and you need to backfill that space, you know the tenants have a certain number as far as rent they can pay. So you'd always rather the taxes be lower than higher. So you'd, you know maybe. Even if the tenant's paying it, you, you know, I think an astute landlord, you might look at contesting the real estate taxes sure. just to try to bring down the operating costs for your tenant. Again, even if it's a pass-through to the tenant because you're just trying to help them operationally keep their costs in, in check and be more profitable. Uh, on a multi-tenant, we, we absolutely do. We're always looking at uh, where the real estate tax is going to go. Um, yeah, even Again, even if it's a pass-through, but if, particularly if it's not a pass-through, if it's a gross lease where the the landlord is responsible for that increase in taxes. So I think we're we're always underwriting the deal based on what are the current taxes, but then where are the taxes potentially going to go to over the next year or two after a sale and taking that into account in our underwriting, our calculating and arriving at our NOI, and where do we think we can put push pricing. So now I think that's certainly something to look at, particularly if the asset's been owned for a number of years by the same ownership group, that upon a sale, you know, we've had instances where taxes might go up Two, three, four hundred percent. So it's something you certainly have to take into account as both the broker marketing or valuing the property, and absolutely as a buyer. Yeah, no, absolutely, and it's important to make that make that assumption and, and include it in your underwriting because that's a big thing that buyers are going to be looking at. If you don't include it, yeah. it's going to be a huge huge reduction that they're going to be right. looking to. And if you have a seller that doesn't want to include it, you you as the broker selling the asset need to make them well aware. Well. Yeah. 
if we don't include it, you know, don't be surprised if they come to you for a hundred thousand dollar reduction. You know, absolutely, because it's directly correlated to the real estate tax. Well, increase. particularly if it's on a, if you've got if your NOI is overstated theoretically by like you say, you know, a significant amount or a hundred thousand dollars, you cap that at a five, six, seven, eight cap, whatever the pricing is. It's not a hundred thousand dollar difference. It's a yes. It's a multiple of that. Right. Uh, and the other expense factor I tend to look at. Uh, closely along with real estate taxes or the insur- is insurance, particularly if you're in a you know, market like we're sitting in Florida sure. that we're prone you know, potentially to hurricanes. So insurance rates can fluctuate if we have a, a bad couple of hurricane seasons. So looking at, yeah, does it include windstorm coverage or you know, what types of liability? Does it include loss of rent? So yeah, if I see an you know, underwriting or a seller tells me their insurance rates in Florida are 20 cents a foot, I know they're probably they don't have windstorm. Do they have loss of rents coverage? So you want to always kind of an idea of what insurance coverage should be at uh, for your particular you know, location and geographic area. Uh, you know, in Tennessee, insurance is much much cheaper than it is in Florida. Um, you know, in Oklahoma, is probably going to be a bit higher because of tornado coverage but or potential risk. Sure, so right. I think looking at insurance is also something you want to pay close attention to, and is at a rate that's feasible and defendable and you know certainly even just contacting an insurance broker and getting a quote and an estimate I'm considering buying this property what should the insurance rate you know what what are my insurance right. rates going to be if I if I buy it Have you done that on some of your Absolutely. properties that yeah, you Yeah we do that on? all the time we'll we'll contact a you know a couple insurance brokers we work with directly and get a sense to what would it cost to replace the insurance and we do that all the time even for clients if they you know, if we look at it and we feel like yeah your rent, your rates seem a little high have you gotten this have you gotten a recent proposal or have you priced this in the last couple of years? And you know, if they haven't, then we can put them in touch with somebody. And very often we're able to help them actually improve their NOI by shopping their insurance if they haven't done that in a few years and, and wow. lowering that cost. Yeah, that makes complete sense. How do, you, how do you account for vacancy factor in your shopping center product? Um, I know in your single tenant and at least stuff, you know, it's not going to typically be vacant for at least 15 years, you know, if it's a right. net new product. And, you know, conceptually speaking, you know, what's your methodology for vacancy factor in your we, underwriting? We really look at it, take into account how's the lender going to underwrite it. Um, and lenders typically are going to take the greater of approximately 5% uh, or market vacancy. So if you're in a market where we're working on a shopping center that maybe 95 or even 100% occupied, if every other shopping center in the submarket is 20% vacancy, then we may, you know, we're going to need to at least analyze why is this center so well occupied. Is sure. it, it might be the best property in the in the submarket. So there might right. very well be a reason for that, but we need to really look at that. And vice versa, if we've got a property that's got 20% vacancy, but every other shopping center in the submarket is fully occupied, maybe it's just totally mismanaged. Maybe the leasing right. team's not doing their job. So we may look at it. And you know we might underwrite to a lower vacancy than the property actually is incurring. Uh, just be able to show a buyer, look, there's tremendous opportunity here. There's reasons this is you know twenty percent vacant compared to the submarket, and you know we're going to you know, take some of that value for the seller. In fact, uh, so I think it's looking at the subject property, how does it sit relative to the market, and then what does the market actually look like? That immediate submarket. And what's the vacancy look like in that in that immediate area, and comparing the and contrasting the two? Right, and and if you have you know a three tenant strip center and it's fully leased and the leases run, you know for five years, you know maybe you don't include a vacancy. I, I don't tend to take a vacancy factor in those sort of properties. Uh, the reason being, I mean, if it's yeah you know, like that, if it's a three tenant property, 
there's no, you, you can't be 95% occupied. And you know, 5% is kind of the, the typical where we see, uh, is kind of that, that's the go-to rate as far as a vacancy factor, depending on the sub-market. So, I mean, a three-tenant center, in reality, you're either, you know, if they're equal size, you're either a third, you know, third, two-thirds, or three-thirds vacant, full, or occupied, you know. So there really is no way to underwrite to a 95% vacancy factor. So those sort of properties, I do tend to just treat them as fully occupied, unless they do have a vacancy, and then obviously we're, we're having to take that into account and underwrite. And, you know, frankly, we may very well advise the seller, look, let's focus on leasing up this vacant unit before we take it to the market, because you're going to be dinged pretty significantly with a third of the property in reality being vacant. Right. No, I, the, the most that you can get in NOI at the property obviously correlates to higher value um, based off the capitalization rate. Uh, how important are retail tenant sales in a shopping center? Um, you know, you know what's good versus average as it relates to top line. You, you look at Publix anchored shopping centers. You look at Walmart centers. You look at you look at these centers with these tenants uh, at the properties, and and the it's it's a case to be made if they're doing great sales because that ultimately drives the value of the property because you can uh, drive at a um, at a lower cap rate. Right. Absolutely. No, we absolutely look at and would advise a buyer, you know, looking at what are the tenant sales, how are the units performing, uh, ideally relative to other properties in the submarket or other units that each of these particular tenants are occupying in the nearby area or in, this, in the market. Um, yeah, like we talked about before, I'd say on average, you're looking to be, you know, like an 8%, 10% rent to sales, particularly in the restaurant sector. Some other sectors are higher, some may be lower. Uh, so I think you're just trying to get a gauge as to how is the unit performing, is it profitable, and trying to gauge, therefore, what are the probabilities of them staying long term. And if you've got a lot, you know, if you've got a very high rent to sales ratio, is that going to be how long is that sustainable, and can the tenant survive without either a, a rent reduction or just literally going out of business? So now, I mean, we we absolutely will look at the rent to sales and or store sales and trying to get a gauge. That's not always the case. I mean, many times we've got centers or even single tenant properties where the information is just not available. Uh, and at times you can try to gauge talking to the local manager, talking to some folks in the in the store. How are they performing? How's it? You know, how are you performing relative to other units that you guys are operating or in your region? Uh, so at times you can just talk up a manager or somebody, uh, just trying to get a sense as to how the tenant's performing, or even just spending time walking the property at different times of day, different days of the week, right. and just seeing what's the traffic look like. Is it is it dead, or is there a constant flow of tenants? If it's a restaurant, how are they looking at you know breakfast, lunch, or dinner? Are they, you know, again, is it, you know, is it a trickle of number of people, or does it look like a constant flow of, of customers, and you, you can kind of gauge that they're doing quite well? Sure, and if you have like a, a retailer that has multiple locations, and you look at comp sales, let's just say like Starbucks anchored, um, shopping center, strip center, or, or you know, a Publix anchored shopping center, something like that, and you you can look at comps of those investment sales across the board. But you can make a case that one of those centers, if they're doing above average in sales, that you can actually ask for and and mm-hmm. in the marketplace get a lower cap rate because that's an over that 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 store is is producing above the norm. I yeah, absolutely, I agree. I mean, it shows higher probability they're going to stay. It shows when the lease comes up, higher pos- probability that you can push on the rents if there aren't renewal options. Right. So now, I mean, if I'm a buyer, I absolutely would pay a lower cap rate if, I, if I've got a comfort level that the tenants are performing you know, above the norm. 
What uh, in today's investment landscape um, is there a lot of activity from foreign capital in your product type? Yeah, I think there absolutely are. Particularly depending on the location of the asset. Particularly, I'd say assets in Florida is an example where we are. We see a tremendous amount of foreign capital coming out of whether it's the Mexican market, South America, Russian market. I mean, other parts of the country you might see more capital coming out of Asia. Uh, certainly here we also see a lot of capital coming out of Canada. Um, so I, I would say yes. Um, I think we absolutely do see a lot of foreign capital. It's become more of a global marketplace, and real estate in the U.S. is still highly attractive and considered very secure. Uh, so yeah, we absolutely are seeing a lot of capital coming from foreign markets, and we're also seeing a lot of capital flowing across state lines as well. I mean, that's also quite common. I mean, again, here in Florida. See a tremendous amount of capital coming in the northeast part of the country, coming out of California, coming out of other states in the southeast. Uh, you know, in the Carolinas, you see a lot of money coming out of Florida. So I'd say it's both foreign and you know, crossing state lines. Domestic capital tends to be quite aggressive as well. Sure. Well, that's that's really interesting that you point out. Um, you know, you started as a real estate attorney, assisting developers and grocery anchorage centers, and and helping them uh, throughout that process. And then you actually you worked in house with the retailer Aaron's. Like that's so right. cool. And then you know you came in and moved over to doing investment sales. Um, you know, how have your past pathways and experiences in your career best prepared you to service your current clients? Um, I think the legal background is just. Being able to foresee issues that might come up in deals, um, can read contracts and kind of see what might happen or what problems might arise, reading leases, just seeing, you know, reading, you know, the assignment clause in a lease, an example. Are there clauses in there that might be problematic potentially? So I think just having a pretty good idea of what the process is in a deal and knowing where the potholes might be or the roadblocks might be that, that could come kind of come out of nowhere and just being prepared for those and knowing how to respond quickly when those do come up and not panicking. I mean, you're doing this for 25 years on, you know, on the brokerage side, I've closed pushing about 500 transactions and the attorney side before that, it closed many, many deals or worked on many leases. So there's not a lot we ha- I haven't seen. Sure. Uh, so it's just being prepared for it and kind of understanding what happens when issues arise. Um, I have an old adage I kind of refer to, you know, problems don't kill deals, surprises kill deals. So I always will, you know, work with clients like, look, it's, as long as I know. That's a great adage. Yeah, so as long as I know what the problems are, we can deal with it. What I don't like to have happen is something just comes totally out of the blue and we're blindsided by, you know, a major tenant issue or, you know, you've told me the the roof is a, you know is perfect and that's not the case uh, just tell me what the problems are and we'll deal with them uh, just don't don't make it where we're surprised so it's just being prepared sure no and I, and I love that I mean it's all about experiences and exposures and and seeing um, issues and learning how to how to overcome those issues or objectives right. and adding that to your toolbox so that as you move forward in the future you're like hey I've seen this before I know how to deal with it you can right. face you can face the object the uh, objective objection head on you know what yeah. I mean and it's something that you, you've you've seen you've you've gotten over and you've prepared for right. so yeah that's amazing and and just you know what, what do you love most about what you do every day um. It's just a different, a different people, different deals. There's no every day is different. I mean, I never know quite what I'm walking into. Um, you know, again, the personalities, the, the the properties, the deals, 
it's just nothing, nothing's ever the same. Uh, no, no sale is the same. No client we work with is the same. So it's just an opportunity to, to see a lot of different things. I mean, I, I also, our practice, we work on deals all over the country. I really enjoy that. I uh, enjoy working on, you know, a lot of, we've sold many, many different tenant types and property types. So just a lot of, a lot of opportunity to, to work on different aspects and different different sectors, different locations. It's just nothing's the same. So it's just always looking at things that are changing, the changing landscape, and we're in a sector that's evolving. Uh, so it's really also studying that. What's what's Amazon doing? What's what's online retail doing? And just really the opportunity to study it and help our clients and uh, prepare and best position or best you know, their assets or their portfolios and. Just the fact that everything is just, there's no, you know, it's not a cookie cutter. Everything, it's just every day and every deal is, is very different. Sure. I mean, this is a relationship-based business, you know, and it's so it's so awesome to be able to um, to obtain ultimate value for the clients that we represent. And, and we do this day in and day out. And so when you can, when you can go out there and you can... You can best service your clients and, and and add tremendous value and provide value and build relationships and talk to a bunch of different people. And you might not get a deal done with this guy, but you built a relationship and who knows where that leads you in the future. But it's just it's an amazing industry. And we love what we do every single day. We're fortunate for the clients that we represent. And yeah, and I would say generally speaking, um, really good people. I mean, I, I mean, there's always exceptions, but right. I'd say 99% of the people I deal with are quality people. Uh, they care about what they do. They care about the people they're working with. They just—I mean, I think in general, we're—you know—it's a—it's a business where we really are dealing with quality people, and you know that makes things a whole lot, a lot easier in a lot of ways. Absolutely. Well, Barry, it's always great seeing you. Likewise. It's always a pleasure, and I, I appreciate it. I look forward to continue building a relationship with you and doing business with you into the future. And thank you so much for your time. This was no. so much fun. No, likewise. Thanks, John. Take care. Appreciate it.